situation almost exactly like this one, where we needed a filler week um, between Advent and, uh, and the beginning of the new year. Um, uh, and we were coming out of 2020. Um, it seemed completely logical to talk about what a bizarre and unexpected uh, journey we had just been on in the previous year with the pandemic, the race riots, the election, murder hornets. I don't know if you guys remember the big murder hornet scare, but I don't like getting stung, so I was watching that one very closely. Um, even a prince and princess, like, quitting their jobs. And, like, we have a labor crisis, and, you know, it's no wonder when royalty quit what they're doing. You know, how are you going to keep a plumber working? But, um, it's still in the rearview mirror. Um, and we looked at the moment the Israelites were, like, leaving slavery and, and the total devastation of the, the kind of exodus. And, uh, and the promised land that laid ahead. And this moment when they kind of had hell in the rearview mirror and they were looking ahead to something amazing. Um, and I think it feels like 2020 was over. We had passed through the fire. And uh, it's really 2021 would be better. Surely nothing could be as bad as 2020. It's really had good up and ready for like a year of blessing. We, uh, and so we titled Hell in the Rearview Mirror last year for this message. Um, and, and definitely, like, globally, things got a little better this year. There's still a drama, still even more frustration. Um, inflation is on the rise. I think we're all still waiting to see if Trump's going to concede the election. I don't know if like, that's going to still hang in there. But, um, but it was generally a little better than 2020. Um, except here at OTCC, it didn't always seem that way. Um, our little church was kind of rocked pretty hard in 2021, especially by sickness and death. And so as we uh, see it kind of in this frozen moment again uh, between calendar years, I'm going to decide to go ahead and use the same graphic and name this sermon exactly the same. Helen the Rear View Mirror again, part two. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and kind of do what we did last year with a year in review, um, hoping this time that the rough times really were in the rear view mirror. Just what I like reviewing anyway. Um, you guys probably figured this out. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my sermon, especially when we're in a series, reviewing what we've talked about before, um, because I believe that we learn by repetition. And, uh, but also, uh, it really does kind of tie the series together. When I write a series, I'm usually kind of writing one big sermon broken into multiple parts. And, and to me, it holds together really well, and I like to share that with everybody. Like, look, we're building on what we did last week. And, And his kid says, 
they went with the weird stack of rocks. You go, oh, that is an amazing story. You're going to love this one. And we tell the same stories over and over and over again for the 100th time. And this repetition, the story continues on. Um, I have to say, I love repetition. I love, I love the act of, of recapping and, uh, and doing review. The third thing we're going to do before we start our identity series that we do every January um, uh, next week uh, with a recap. So we, we kicked off last year with our identity series. We called it Welcome to the Table. Um, if you were here, you'll remember this graphic. Um, we talked about several table scenes in the Bible and what they should have had to say um, here at Open Table, here at OTCC. Uh, we get a name uh, from these metaphors that are all through the scripture. Um, uh, especially this one where um, Jesus is giving a parable and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet and a, a lot of people were called and when the when the, the husband of the bridegroom saw that there was empty seats he said hey there's still empty seats get out and find more people and, and, and as long as there was a seat at the table the work was not done and so we kind of got a name uh, from that metaphor of an open table as long as there are seats open we have to we have to reach out to people. And this year, we also broke in 1 Corinthians 11, and why we feel so strongly about the communion table, and especially why we welcome everyone to come. Um, a lot of churches don't necessarily do that, so if you missed that and you're curious about that, hit the YouTube channel and find that. Uh, it's worth a listen. Um, we, did, we had two weeks to fill, again, before we were in Lent. And so rather than trying to kind of create um, this weird, uh, you know, two-week series, we kind of did two independent messages. On February 7th, I preached a message called, What do you do with a bad future? And we, we talked about um, the difference between Hezekiah and his great grandson Josiah. And they both got this bad prophecy for what was about to happen to their nation. And Hezekiah kind of got established. He was like, Hey, at least it's going to be okay during my lifetime. Like he totally saw it as, like, At least nothing's going to fall apart while I'm here. And, uh, and really, I've always been a good team up to that point. He kind of fell apart. And after that moment, he invited Babylon to come look at all the riches of the land. And that's what made Babylon think, hey, they're worth conquering. And, and he also gave birth to, in that time period, to what was going to be the worst king Israel ever had, Manasseh. And so what happened kind of after he made that selfish decision to, to live it up, hey, at least it's going to be okay in my lifetime. Um, and we, we kind of created a juxtaposition between him and his great grandson Josiah, who was this young king. He got the same prophecy. And rather than kind of, you know, throw up his hands and say, there's nothing I can do, he led one of the biggest revivals, knowing that, you know, that the nation was doomed anyway. He went to work, led one of the biggest revivals Israel ever had. He restored a bunch of the festivals. He got rid of a bunch of the idols. And so we kind of created this situation where, you know, what if there is no new normal? What if? You know, everything is falling apart. What does that mean to us? It means we continue to do the same things. We continue to love. We continue to, to tell people about Jesus. We get, like, it doesn't change anything for us. Like, you know, yeah, we hope for the future that it's going to be amazing. But if not, we keep on advancing the kingdom of God because that's what Jesus' people do. After all, I said Sunday on Valentine's Day. I remember when it was that crazy, bitter, cold snap we had. It was, like, so cold that we did church online that week. And... Made my wife come out in the bitter cold to come up here to the church and preach with me, and we did a Valentine um, message titled "What's Love Got to Do with It?" And we did that like, Valentine's Day. We kind of told the history of Saint Valentine and why it was a church holiday and uh, and what that meant. We also talked about 
um, this idea of symptom. Um, the ancient rabbis said that God's love was like a symptom kind of love. Um, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word that means to withdraw oneself to create space for another. And it still allows us a really philosophical Jewish concept where they can do a message and if God was all there is, and he's everything that there is, then where did he put the universe? Like, and it's not just one of those things philosophers do, like, where do you put something that you make if you're all there is? And so they created this concept that God would have had to have withdrawn some of himself to create space for the universe. And it's kind of honest that, but then they, it grew into this understanding that, um, that true love allows for the autonomy of the other. Um, true love allows space for the other to be fully themselves so that you can love them for exactly who they actually are. And I think that's really important this because it seems that like our culture, especially cancel culture, is committed to taking away autonomy and kind of dictating to others um, what they can say and what they can believe and what they can stand for. And they're doing it all in the name of love, like what they're calling love. Like, because we love people, we, we, we are going to control everything you say and do, blah, blah, blah. And that's not the way divine love works. Divine love creates space. God, knowing Adam and Eve could only flop and sin like they did, created space for them and, and created distance for them um, to, 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 to be themselves and to... Uh, uh, and to have autonomy. And real love does that. The ancient rabbis call it zimzum, to withdraw oneself to create space for another so that you can love them for who they actually are. So we're going to do February 14th last year. Um, we're going to do that in the web series. Uh, and this was one of my, one of the first series that I, I think uh, I've had writing and preaching. We preached for six weeks on some of the big highlights of Jesus' life, the big stories that we tell all the time um, those passages in the Gospels that we, we hear a lot and we quote, um, the ones that are big enough to kind of warrant posting on social media. Like if Jesus had an Instagram feed, these are the stories he would have selfied in. You know, the ones that were the best stories. And so uh, the Gospel writers treated with these, and, and uh, we took several of them, including the Easter morning story, the big story. And uh, we spent a kind of talking about these highlights of Jesus' life. Um, in, in a way that only life can do, where we kind of face the darkness of the wilderness and hope for resurrection life, um, like we do every every Lent. And then Easter morning, um, uh, which was my very first Easter that I got to preach. It's so weird. We've been in church for like four years. I had never preached an Easter morning service because we were in another church where we meet at night. And so it just didn't work out. And then the week before, the year before, we were in lockdown, so I didn't get to preach Easter. I mean, I did for my table, but not like. Not like uh, and so, um, so we talked about Usta. You may remember this. You may remember Usta, the goddess of the Easter eggs and the bunny sacrifices. If you didn't hear that message, you want to go back and listen to it. Um, it was a fun one. Uh, hit the YouTube channel. I'm not even going to spoil it. Go find that. It was a good one. And then Easter, um, having spent like this whole web series talking about life, real life, like Jesus was always hinting towards, I think that you could life. Um, we took a series to dig deeper into what resurrection life might be about. We talked about a series, The Game of Life. Um, in the series, we looked at the similarity between John and Moses um, and their writings. And the way that I have their writings as a way to find life. Moses was like, you know, I offer you this a death in life. Oh, that you would choose life. Um, and John said, I've written these things that you may have life. And, and uh, it's really great. 
talked about how they're writing for here so we can have life. And so we kind of figured out what that looked like. And it wasn't just like eternal life. It wasn't just like heaven. It was Moses' was like that you may live long in the earth and that you may be abundant and full and rich. Like it was life life, like living our life in a full uh, and, and resurrected kind of way. It's all three. Got into the Ezekiel dry bones from Ezekiel 37, and we got into 38, and talked about how Jesus was kind of intentionally pulling these stories into his story. Um, things would happen, and he would go back and say, "Ah, this is the time," and he would refer back to Ezekiel 38 and sometimes 37. And, and uh, so, if you care to do that, it's worth a review. Go back and find that one. It should be on the YouTube channel. We go into a long summer series, um, studying the Book of Acts, especially. From the perspective of what that book might have to say about living as a Christian today, um, from the moment Jesus left his followers and kind of thereby um, turned them from observers into active participants um, in the gospel, um, uh, all the way up until the first church council, where the, the church kind of gathered to discuss what um, the church organization might look like going forward. Um, they had big questions about, hey, how are we going to live this out? And they meant to talk about that. And they kind of created what we know of as church today. And the space that we have to, uh, to worship. Um, and it's kind of like this kind of ragtag bunch of Jesus followers um, leaned hard into community and did everything they could to just kind of keep up with the Holy Spirit. It seemed like the Holy Spirit was always doing the next thing, and they were there going, okay, I guess this is God, like, and, and just doing everything they could to kind of keep up with what God was doing. Um, so I really admit, if you missed some of that, go back and, and talk about the impact of the early church on and how much they were able to accomplish uh, when they were kind of this single, unified, um, loving, committed community with no divisions. We decided to spend a few weeks focusing on uh, it's like a biblical call for unity in the church. Um, this is probably the most academic, um, and a little bit dry series, um, a little scholarly, but uh, it's such a crucial theology in the scripture. This desperate case for the unity of the church, especially in a divided world today. We need this. Um, as things get more and more polarized, the church has to, has to, has to stand against that division of love. Um, Jesus told us that if we would do that, that's how the world would know that um, we're his disciples, that we are his, that we would actually love. Um, I don't always understand how that would work, but he said, this, this will work. If you love one another, people will know you're my disciples. Um, and he said that it would be our best witness. That would be our best way to let people know, was our love for one another. Not accurate Bible interpretation, not theology, not the ability to debate non-believers and convince them that God is real. He didn't say anything about any of that. He said, if you want to let people know, you want to really let people know, love one another. If you love one another, it's going to be so weird and so different and so off-putting that they're going to know there's something odd about you. You must be with Jesus. Um, and the definition of, kind of maturity and immaturity, the church has not done a good, a good job with this. Paul basically said, I would love to talk to you like mature people, but I cannot. Because you're still babies, because you're divided. Like that was his only litmus test for maturity. Was like I can't even talk to you like mature people because you still divide, and if you still divide, you're still babies. Um, which is a, a pretty convicting um, method for the church. But 
can't increase that. Like, Paul's first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, his third, like, 
We know Paul for his personal itinerary. He was a traveler. He was a mover. Um, and he was incapable. He's a lot. He's, he's incapable of seeing anyone, of going anywhere, of talking to anyone. He said he was at one point that, hey, I almost got the, the, the guards saved. And some of the people in Caesar's house were starting to become believers. Like, he was witnessing wherever he was. He was reaching out to people. But, um, but he's obviously hurting. This is not the life that he has lived up to this point. Um, so he knows that it is torture, but uh, he, is, he is incapable of seeing anyone he loves or fixing uh, to the message like he has. And there was another twist. In Rome, the state didn't provide for prisoners. You know, like, we would have taken we feed them and make sure they're taken care of. And the government did that. The family did that. They bring you, like, food and, and water and stuff. When you were in prison, so if you didn't have anything to provide for you, you just died in prison. Um, and so, there are other cities where he was hungry, so he didn't have enough money for his provision, didn't get there, so he's, he's not in a good place. Um, so, we have a couple of existential questions going through Paul's head, like, has God abandoned me? Where is God? We all wrestle with those who are going through hard times. And the physical concerns of hunger and exposure. Um, I mean, there's a point where he's writing from prison. He's like, hey, do me a favor. When you send Mark, bring, have him bring my coat and the books. Like, where it's like, there's exposure issues involved in this. Um, and all the kind of vocational wranglings of whether or not um, he's wasting his purpose in prison. Uh, Paul said he was in a good place, geographically or emotionally, when he wrote. Uh, the Philippian church, this letter. But he's not aware of that man who, who's now isn't in the rearview mirror. Um, he's actually still sitting in the midst of it. Here's what he writes. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard until now. I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about you. For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in my defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. But I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. I actually love how well Paul captures the tension between recognizing and even deeply feeling the positives while also owning the negatives. He sits in this in this uh, tension between the two. Listen to how genuinely positive Paul's voice sounds. And, and remember, as you read this, this is the guy sitting in the first century prison. Listen, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request, my request for you with joy. 
For you have been honored with uh, in spreading the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ from the time you first heard until now. And in case you aren't familiar with the book of Philippians, this is probably Paul's happiest letter. Um, it's a really emotional um, book. There's some great theology here, but the kind of closest thing that Paul has um, to a letter to friends, the people he genuinely cared about with like his soul. And, uh, and Paul is super, super casual and incredibly encouraging in this book, um, even as he talks about his own potential impending death. As a part of this book, he's like, hey, if I die, you know, I'll be with Christ. And he's talking about his own death, and, and even in the midst of that kind of darkness, he's, he's super loving and super encouraging. And somehow I totally get Paul's tension this year. Uh, I mean, two years ago, before COVID started, like literally just before COVID started, um, uh, I, I was super excited about church. Um, we were growing quite fast. There was an energy and time and electricity um, in the air, and just coming to church on Sundays was was really really fun. And then two years later, um, after weathering lockdowns and questions about whether to mask or not to mask, and Losing a few people who didn't come back after the shutdowns and gaining some others whom I'm now deeply in love with. Um, here I stand every bit as excited about coming to church each week, uh, or maybe even more excited, but for like a totally different reason. Um, because I think I've learned this year what Paul no doubt knew all along um, is that tough times do more to bond people to each other than great times ever could. Um, Two years ago, I was excited about the organization of Open Table Community Church. Um, but today, I'm excited about the people. Like I, I've fallen in love with some of the people this year, going through some of the things we've gone through. Today, uh, my heart beats for the people that I've gotten close to. Um, you know, like today when I'm really, really tired. It's been a long couple of weeks, and uh, I love that I get to do my life with you guys. I love that I get to come and see your faces um, every week. There's been some times this year when my job, the job part of this, was tough. Um, but even in those weeks, I counted myself to be one of the luckiest people in the world because I was I was with people that I was madly in love with. And of course, I want to compare my difficult times this year to Paul's imprisonment. I'm not like one of those people like, you don't know what it's like. No, that's not... I'm, I'm, not a millennial, okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 at the end of another kind of difficult year, I totally understand Paul's gratitude, even as he was in prison, because I feel the exact same way. Um, and, and I totally don't want to even suggest that God allows hard times just to bring us closer. Um, but I feel closer to my church family uh, after this year um, than I did ever when things were smooth sailing. Um, the struggles that served to kind of bind us together. Uh, and, and to me, that's really, really encouraging. And, and to be honest, there's, there's another reason that Paul's relationship with the Philippians feels very close to home this year. Uh, and as Paul says this, uh, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I was uh, first brought to you the good news and then traveled on to Macedonia. No other church did this. And then a few verses later he says, Now I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I just could not be concerned about me, but you didn't have a chance to help me. 
Personally, people who choose to substitute and more empathy, not the question, they choose to their communication, they choose to stronger personal relationships, and they're able to work generally like that in group. Third, we should do this in one group. It is the ultimate. Because 
we have a shot of it. We have a shot of it. We can have a piece of our ready to die. It's good. We can play a piece of will over feeling, things that we can do and control. You say that, or you're just going to feel that. You don't really have to conscious control of it. It's speaking for a lot of people.
when you do feel gratitude, when it's real, when you feel it and you read that down, and you're like, huh, oh, I love it when people take a morning to me at church. I love coming to church and having people greet you with a smile. That feels good. And you write that down. The feeling is in the moment. Every time you feel grateful, you have to go list. And when you don't feel grateful, you go to list and you choose to believe it. You write it down and you can get a list of people saying good morning to me. What is the case? Obviously, I must have felt something because I wrote it down. And so you, you have a choice at that moment. So I don't necessarily feel it right now. I'm choosing to leave. I'm grateful when people smile at me and say, I'm grateful when my kids come up and hug me. Or I, I don't feel it right now. Right now I'm feeling down. Right now I'm feeling, you know, upset. But I put this on my gratitude list, so I know I'm grateful for this. Even if I don't feel it right now. And you can choose to believe yourself that you are grateful. Uh, so it's really, really fun to write it down. With that, uh, and this will be the third uh, important thing as we grow in gratitude, and that's say it out loud. This is another neurological trick. Our brains actually respond to, to auditory things in a totally different way than it does to us just imagining things. So it, however weird it is, even if you're by yourself, say it out loud. You need to hear it as much as you need to think it. Thinking it is only part of it. You have a whole part of your brain that lights up when it, when it gets auditory stimulation, it doesn't light up when you're thinking to yourself in your brain. Um, so it's just okay to read your gratitude list and try to convince yourself that you felt grateful about those things at one point. Um, you also need to say the word. Thank you God that people smile at me when I go to church. Super important that when you when you make your list, you say it out loud. When you're when you're feeling down, when you're upset, um, thank you God that I have a church where I go and people will smile at me. Say the word. Um, this is what makes your brain start to make all that happy juice that you're looking for. Um, when you when you will say the words, I'm grateful for this, your brain starts to make that dopamine and serotonin um, that makes the whole brain start to work better and kind of drives you back from the abyss. Uh, Paul told the Philippians that he thanked God for them. He said it. He, he, he voiced it to them in his letter. The implication is that um, he does this out loud um, every time he thinks about them. So it has to be out loud. Finally, um, and this is a very tough one, um, if possible, share it. Um, Paul tells the Philippians why he's grateful. Um, he talked, we talked a couple weeks ago about how joy and relationship are deeply connected. Um, they're linked. We feel joy when we share joy. When we see joy in another face and someone smiles at us, it lights up our joy center. Even if we're trying to be grumpy, something about a smile like affects the brain and makes us feel joyful. Joy is, is a relational uh, emotion. And so when you tell another person why you are grateful, it activates the joy center in your brain. Um, and before you know it, you're actually beginning to feel uh, the gratitude that your brain knows is true but can't seem to feel in the moment. When you share that with somebody, uh, you'll start to feel it. So as you read... Philippians, uh, and I highly recommend you go home and do just that. Um, it's really amazing how beautiful and emotional Paul is in this letter. Um, he's genuinely encouraging and loving and positive. Um, and not only is he in prison, um, one of his topics is uh, a conversation about how he's likely going to die there. And he still, matter, uh, he still um, somehow manages. 
um, to share a lot of gratitude, just saturating the letter with gratitude. I want you to tell the face maybe the toughest season of his life um, and, and face it with this somehow uh, upbeat um, attitude because he was not only grateful for the people that he loved, but he was communicating to them his gratitude. And I think it had an impact on his life. Um, so the cause of the year, um, and as we launch together into this new one, um, I would love for us to respond to this message by maybe ditching this year the New Year's resolution um, list. And instead, starting today, build a gratitude list. Start writing it down. I think it's important, um, and keep it handy. We all have phones now. Stick it in there, and when you're done, look at that list, and 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 you're going to feel it. I'm not saying you're going to look at that list and go, "Oh, that's right." I'm saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have to rewire your brain, and this is something you can do. You can go to that list and go, "Whew, I don't feel that, but God, I know that somewhere in me, I am thankful for this person. I'm thankful for my my." I'm so thankful for these things, even if I don't feel it right now. And your brain will begin to catch up. Um, I've been so much over the past couple weeks that I'd like to start taking mental and emotional health seriously um, and talking about it around here. And I'm, we're going to dig in a little bit into some of the things um, we might cover as we started the year ahead. I went and looked at the Lent readings because we follow the lectionary when we're in Lent and so on. Uh, and I believe uh, it's going to be a year where we do just that, where we spend some time uh, digging in deep into uh, redeeming the relationship with ourselves and the relationship with others that we talk a lot about around here. So as we come on the table and sing one more song, um, I'd like to, uh, to read one more verse that Paul shared with another church uh, that he was also emotionally close to. He said, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Let's go to the table. Mm-hmm.